from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, October 11th. I'm Marco Werman. Foreign policies on the agenda for tonight's Biden-Ryan vice presidential debate. We'll preview the arguments and experience each candidate brings to the table. And later, some sober lessons for well-meaning medical volunteers in the wake of the earthquake in Haiti. They didn't bring water. They didn't bring food. They thought that shelter would be provided, that you know, all they had to do was show up and say, I'm a doctor, where can I do surgery? And you know, it doesn't work like that. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, producer of NOVA. Explore the gap between the glamorous television world of CSI and the reality of the forensic crime lab. With few established scientific standards, no central oversight, and poor regulation. NOVA's Forensics on Trial, Wednesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. If you're looking for foreign policy insight tonight at the vice presidential debate, you may be in the same place I am, scratching your head. We know current Vice President Joe Biden has a lot of foreign policy experience, and Mitt Romney's running mate, Paul Ryan, well, we don't know much about his position, so how will the two men compare when they meet in Danville, Kentucky? Good question. How ready is either man to deal with the nation's foreign and defense policies and national security? James Traub is a fellow at the Center on International Cooperation and writes a weekly column for foreignpolicy.com. And Ted Bromond is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, what foreign experience, what foreign policy experience does Paul Ryan have, uh, James Traub? Has he traveled much? Uh, it's a very good question. I don't know the answer. I can tell you that uh, before it was clear who the Republican nominee was, I talked to a lot of Republicans who were foreign policy folks who were hoping the nominee would be Ryan, not only because they liked his domestic policies, but because he had spoken on defense issues. And like Romney, he was in favor of increased defense spending. And they thought of him as being a relatively sophisticated thinker on this stuff, though to my knowledge, he probably has very little direct experience of the world. And and Ted Bromond, I mean, uh, Jim Traub talked about defense spending. Uh, Paul Ryan has talked about defense spending. What about foreign policy? I think it's important to bear in mind that most members of the House of Representatives have relatively little foreign policy experience. Traditionally, if you want to look for foreign policy experience, of course, you'd probably go to the U.S. Senate. That said, I, I think that Representative Ryan is attractive to a lot of Republicans because he embeds his domestic policy vision in a larger idea of American exceptionalism, support for economic freedom, principles that translate fairly easily into foreign policy. So, Jim Traub, where do you think we'll really see some distinct differences between uh, Biden and uh, Ryan tonight? Well, I think you can tell from what Ted said that there's a rhetorical difference. And it's very easy to mistake a rhetorical difference for a substantive difference, but because language does matter, I think 
we should say that. That is, Paul Ryan is going to say, as Romney says, I don't believe in apologizing for America. I believe that America is, is and is meant to be the preeminent nation of the world. But Biden, of course, won't say otherwise. He'll just say it's, it's a complicated world, and those wonderful words don't really take you very far. So I imagine that Biden will be contrasting the difficult lessons of experience from these glorious uh, rhetorical positions that, that Ryan takes. Now, on Monday, Paul Ryan uh, had this to say about foreign policy. Let's hear this tape. If you go home after this and turn on your TV, you will likely see the failures of the Obama foreign policy unfolding before our eyes. You see, if you look around the world, what we are witnessing is the unraveling of the Obama foreign policy. It does seem a a little broad, but it does echo what Mitt Romney's been saying as well. Ted Broman, what's your understanding of what the Republicans are saying? I think uh, that Representative Ryan's condemnation of the Obama foreign foreign policy, and specifically the reference to unraveling, obviously refers directly to recent events in Libya and probably to a lesser extent to events in in Syria. But I think it reflects a broad-based Republican and conservative belief that first, the president has not been particularly interested in foreign policy, and to the extent that he has been interested in foreign policy, much of his foreign policy has now backfired. The idea of a reset with Russia, with which Vice President Biden is closely identified, has produced few, if any, identifiable gains. The president's hesitant support for the overthrow of Egyptian President Mubarak appears to have gone very badly. The operation in Libya, which Vice President Biden did not initially support, has produced the murder of an ambassador. Uh, None of these things are liable, I I think, to rebound uh, to the success of the administration or to be very attractive positions to defend in a debate. Jim Traub, do you agree with that? And do you think Uh, Paul Ryan is going to dig into details? One of the things that's going to be fascinating in the debate is that on all these Middle Eastern questions, on this whole issue that has to do with democracy uh, and the kind of mess of democracy, uh, Ryan and Romney are trying to come at it from two opposing sides simultaneously. That is, on the one side, you hear a lot of Republicans saying uh, Obama was too quick to abandon our allies like Mubarak and that our other allies like the Saudis no longer trust us. Then you hear on the other side the idea that he's been too timid in supporting democracy in in Syria, for example. Now, these are two different strains in the Republican Party, but they're not compatible with each other. And I suspect one thing Biden will do is try to smoke out this this contradiction. Ted Broman, Joe Biden is often touted uh, as having greater foreign policy chops, uh, some of the best uh, on Capitol Hill. But really, how much practical experience does he have? Well, he has a good deal of experience with being on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but in terms of actual practical experience, his experience derives from the previous almost four years of being the vice president. There are really, of course, uh, two sides to having a good deal of experience, or at least a good deal of experience with talking. Uh, The advantage is that it, it gives the vice president some actual experience and a lot of experience with expressing his views on the subject. The disadvantage is that he's been on the record for over 30 years advocating a huge number of things, sometimes in his characteristically forthright language, uh, which are liable to come up in the debate. And inevitably, he's been on the wrong, or at least on the contentious side, of a good many of issues over that course of time. So the disadvantage for Representative Ryan, of course, is that he doesn't have that sort of long record. 
That's not necessarily a complete disadvantage in the context of the debate, however. And, yeah. and do you think there will be any foreign policy or national security issues uh, that uh, Biden and Ryan will agree on? Uh, that's a very interesting question. Of course, uh, substantively, one finds the two sides aren't really in that much disagreement. They just try to accentuate it. Their mm. views on Syria are very hard to distinguish. Even their, their views on Iran, allegedly so different, don't seem so different to me. Both will have it in their interest to say that is not the case, but in fact, there will be more agreement than, looks, than, than meets the eye. And Ted, do you agree with that assessment uh, of the agreement? Uh, I, I think one area that you might see some agreement on, although I think in this case the agreement would be exaggerated, is that you're liable to have the vice president uh, mention the free trade area agreements that the administration finally concluded with a number of countries, including South Korea. And pointing to that as a continuation of the bipartisan American support for free trade post-World War II. And you're liable, of course, to see Representative Ryan taking a strong position on the importance of American leadership for economic freedom. So that that might be an element of at least partial agreement. Maybe agreement on the agreements. Ted Bromond is a senior research fellow at the conservative think tank, the Heritage Foundation. James Traub is a fellow at the Center on International Cooperation. Thank you both very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Here's another thing the Obama and Romney campaigns agree on, a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian problem. The president has long said that's what he wants. Romney supported the idea earlier this week. For now, Mideast peace talks remain as stalled as ever. If and when they start up again, one of the thorniest issues on the table will be the fate of Palestinian refugees who fled their homes when Israel was created 60-plus years ago. Well, Israel is now waging a campaign to add another issue to the agenda, the plight of Jews from Arab countries who fled their homes. Daniel Estrin has more from Jerusalem. If you're a Jew who moved to Israel some 60-odd years ago from Syria or Lebanon or Iraq, this is the place for you. It's a clubhouse in a back alley of Jerusalem's outdoor vegetable market. No frills, just a few plastic flowers taped to the walls and the clacking sound of Middle Eastern Jewish men playing backgammon. Menashe Butkov moved here with his family from Baghdad when he was 17. He says after the Mideast War of 1948, when Israel was established and many Palestinians fled or were kicked out of their homes, Iraq treated Jews with hostility. They said, you are Jews. You took the Arabs' homes. And so we're taking your homes. They threw us out with nothing. We left our homes, we left our property, and we came here. That's a story that's been forgotten, Israeli diplomats say. The story of the Jewish refugees from Arab lands. Who are the refugees? Why, more than 60 years later, is this still an issue? Let's look at the facts. Israeli Deputy Foreign Minister Danny Ayalon put together this snappy YouTube video called The Truth About Refugees. For more than two millennia, Jews lived across the Middle East. Their numbers dwindled drastically after Israel was founded. I'd like you to take a look at the refugees in these photos. Many people assume they are Arab refugees fleeing Israel. But in fact, they are innocent Jewish refugees forced out of Arab countries. There were far more Jewish refugees than Arab refugees. Opening up this can of worms is not a joke. That's Hanan Ashrawi, a senior Palestinian official who is not at all pleased with the Israeli campaign. She argues that many Jews weren't kicked out of Arab countries. They came to Israel because they wanted to live in their spiritual homeland, not because they were forced to. 
And Israel worked hard to bring those Jews to the fledgling Jewish state. While at the same time it carried out a massive campaign of expulsion of Palestinians. So who's a refugee? Ashrawi says Middle Eastern Jews can try to get compensation from Iraq or Syria or anywhere else, but that's got nothing to do with Palestinians. Demanding that restitution for Jewish properties be dealt with during Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiations is a dangerous proposition, she warns, because the Palestinians could demand the same. Palestinians also lost property, property that is in today's Israel. If you want to go down that path, we'll go down that path with you all the way. They want restitution, we want restitution. We want all our property back. This is opening up Pandora's box. If you give the Palestinians their rights, the right to return, restitution and compensation, there will be no more Israel. In the past, Israel actually blocked efforts by Middle Eastern Jews to seek compensation from Arab countries. The Israeli-Egyptian peace treaty explicitly prevents Egyptian-born Jews from seeking restitution. Yehuda Shenhav, a professor at Tel Aviv University, says Israel wanted to keep restitution as a bargaining chip. The state of Israel did block such claims because it wanted to save those assets to use against the claims of the Palestinians in future negotiation over property and assets. Here's a solution Israel is putting forth. A big international pot of money for Palestinians and Middle Eastern Jews. Float that proposal here in the Backgammon Club and Middle Eastern Jews shrug. Menashe Yaakov, who left northern Iraq for Israel in 1951, says he doesn't expect Israel to ever finagle reparations. So many times Israeli officials have tricked us. Fill out this form, sign that. My father, may he rest in peace, wrote letters a few times to Israel and the Jewish agency. Now who will give anything to us? Everything is gone. Basically, Israel's saying to its Middle Eastern Jews, wait till we negotiate peace with the Palestinians, then compensation will come. But around these parts, people have learned the hard way that waiting for Israeli-Palestinian peace is just like waiting for Godot. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Still ahead on the program, Saudi Jeans is a blog in Saudi Arabia, but the writer has other concerns more urgent than denim right now. We'll hear what they are on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's going on three years now since a massive earthquake struck Haiti. Many thousands died. Thousands more suffered serious injuries. Immediately after the quake, a flood of American medical professionals rushed to Haiti to help. But now some who responded are asking, how much good did they do? And how can they do better after the next natural disaster? Reporter Amy Costello has the story. Andy and Jennifer Day remember the moment they went from being mere observers of the Haiti crisis to deciding they wanted to take their medical skills to Haiti. We both sat and watched a telethon with, uh, it was Justin Timberlake. Yeah, and didn't George Clooney, wasn't he featured? Wasn't he he the one who... Well, and they showed this panel of all these big celebrities. (laughs) But what really caught the couple's attention were the pictures of the kids. 
bandaged and bleeding, missing limbs. Andy and Jennifer live in Indiana. She's a registered nurse. He's an anesthesiologist. After that telethon, Andy mentioned to some colleagues that he and his wife were interested in volunteering in Haiti. A few weeks later, his phone rang. It was a local surgeon who was headed to Haiti. He said, hey, you had mentioned being interested in this. Are you still interested? And I said, sure. What are you thinking of? And he told me about it. He said, but if you're going to do it, we have to be on a plane next week. And before they knew it, Andy and Jennifer landed in Port-au-Prince. Jennifer says she had second thoughts almost immediately. I really just wanted to stay at the airport and, and hide. And it was just elbow to elbow and just complete chaos. Jennifer and Andy had never worked outside a U.S. hospital before. That makes them pretty typical among the medical volunteers who went to Haiti. Richard Goslin of UC Berkeley's School of Public Health is an orthopedic surgeon and veteran of humanitarian medicine. He worked in Haiti after the earthquake. Later, Goslin co-authored a study that found almost two-thirds of the surgeons who volunteered in Haiti had no prior disaster experience. Goslin says he could spot the amateurs right away. They didn't bring much with them. They didn't bring any supplies. They didn't bring water. They didn't bring food. They thought that shelter would be provided, that you know, all they had to do was show up and say, I'm a doctor, where can I do surgery? And you know, it doesn't work like that. Many doctors also didn't bring medicine. Stephanie Caden is a doctor at Harvard and directs the International Emergency Medicine Fellowship at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital. She says even in a disaster area, surgeons are responsible for making sure that anesthesia will be provided during their surgeries. But Caden says many surgeons lack training in international emergency medicine and didn't think to bring anesthesia with them. She says that had serious consequences in Haiti. Surgeries were either delayed because the surgeons didn't want to operate without the anesthesia, or people had to undergo amputations and other surgeries without anesthesia, which was... Uh, Horrifying. Even doctors who tried their best to provide good pain management encountered difficulties. Andy Day, the anesthesiologist from Indiana, accompanied a surgeon to Haiti in the hopes that none of their patients would have to endure surgery without anesthesia. Before he left the U.S., he checked and was told there was a drug supply awaiting him. But once surgery got underway, Andy encountered problems with the drug supply he'd inherited. He found out the hard way, and too late, that sometimes the medicines he was using weren't making the patients fully numb. My suspicion is we had these medicines that had been sitting in 100-plus degree heat in this uncirculated, unventilated, unair-conditioned facility. And I suspect some of those medicines were either rendered ineffective while in storage down there or maybe were expired old stock from other places that had been donated and were long since ineffective. Experts who studied the medical response in Haiti point to other serious problems that stemmed from disorganization or basic lack of experience among volunteers. They say of the thousands of amputations performed in Haiti, many may have been avoidable. And the medical procedures used to save injured limbs were often inappropriate, too. One of those procedures is known as external fixation. Instead of a cast, surgeons place a metal rod along a patient's limb. Doctors then stabilize the rod by screwing pins into the patient's bone. Fixators work well in Western hospitals. They're also used in war zones, where troops are whisked off from the front lines to sterile environments where they can recuperate. Fixators didn't work so well in Haiti, according to Harvard's Stephanie Caden. External fixators usually have to stay in the skin, screwed into the bone underneath the skin, for uh, three months. And during that three months, 
or so, you have to keep the external fixture from becoming infected. And in a situation like Haiti, where people are living in tents or sometimes out in the open air, it's a very difficult thing to keep them from being infected. And I would say in Haiti, it created a big problem for a lot of people. Caden and others say simpler, less invasive techniques to treat broken bones would have been a better option in Haiti. Of course, any criticisms of the way medical professionals handled themselves in Haiti should recognize this was a disaster of enormous scale. If doctors and nurses hadn't been there, many Haitians might have died for lack of any care at all. And many did die because they received no medical treatment whatsoever. The question is, how much good did volunteers do in the end? And how much harm did they cause? Sweden's highly regarded Karolinska Institute recently published a study that tried to answer that question. The Institute sent questionnaires to some 274 entities that worked in Haiti after the earthquake to get details on the type and quality of care provided. But of those 274 questionnaires sent out, just four were returned. The authors said their inability to determine the outcome of medical activities in Haiti, quote, raises serious accountability questions. One reason for that lack of accountability, many organizations providing care in Haiti weren't really organizations at all. Andy and Jennifer Day traveled from Indiana to Haiti with just one orthopedic surgeon and his physician's assistant. I asked Andy the name of the organization they traveled with. There wasn't a name. It was a a, a friend of a friend. Those who've studied the response in Haiti are urging some changes before the next major disaster strikes. For one, many are calling for some kind of registration process for medical volunteers, which would be a step toward accrediting teams that deploy to crisis zones. Second, they say organizations should do a better job of tracking the outcomes of their efforts and sharing what worked and what didn't. And third, they say doctors and nurses should get training in international emergency medicine before volunteering in a disaster. As for Andy and Jennifer Day, they too would do things differently next time. They say they wouldn't jump on a plane and rush to a crisis zone. That's not the way I want to spend my life making the world a better place. That sounds kind of harsh. <laughs> Chime in whenever what are, you want. What are money, you know, sending money, would that have done more good for more people? Jennifer and Andy haven't ruled out volunteering again, but next time they say they'll join up with a seasoned organization that really knows the local environment and how to practice medicine in the chaos of a disaster. For The World, I'm Amy Costello. Amy Costello also hosts a podcast called Tiny Spark. You can hear a longer version of the story and see photos at tinyspark.org. And we want to hear your stories of volunteering overseas. Have you been part of an international medical response? What lessons did you learn? Tell us at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, an archaeologist who studies immigration through the objects he finds in the desert, from the macabre to the humorous. I did find once a wallet with this person's um, identification from Mexico, along with um, this little kitschy illegal alien driver's license that they had purchased probably in Roswell, New Mexico. They had a picture of an alien on it. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. So this year's Nobel Prize for Literature goes to hallucinatory realism. Actually, it went to Chinese writer Mo Yan, who was praised by the Swedish Academy for his hallucinatory realism, merged with folk tales, history, and the contemporary. Mo Yan is not a household name on this side of the globe, so it's a good thing that we've got the world's China correspondent, Mary Kay Magstad, on hand to tell us more about the author. Mo Yan is actually a pen name, which means don't speak. His real name is Guan Mo Ya. He's 57 years old. He's originally from the eastern province of Shandong. He grew up as a farmer. He joined the People's Liberation Army after living through the Cultural Revolution. And it was actually while he was in the PLA that he started to write. Um, He's written prolifically. Books like Big Breasts and Wide Hips, Republic of Wine, Life and Death Are Wearing Me Out. And the book that probably Americans know best would be Red Sorghum, which was made into a film by Zhang Emo and got wide circulation around the world. His style tends to be sort of magical realism. He has one novel where it opens with the protagonist being burnt to a crisp and he goes on to become an animal and to live out his life in a different form. He has talked about how in his province, when uh, even before he was born, one of the things that sort of inspired him to take this sort of approach to things was the actual attitude of farmers when they saw new things come into their realm. For instance, back in the late 19th century, when there were German uh, colonialists, really, in the port city of Qingdao, they built a railway through Shandong. And he said the farmers laid out black beans and straw because they figured that's what the train would eat. And they were trying Mm -hmm. to lure it away from the tracks onto their field because bandits in the area had said that the engines were made of pure gold. These are the sorts of stories that he has said stayed with him and that he wrote about and embellished uh, into a a fuller form of magical realism in his novels. Now, if uh, Mo Yan's pen name means don't speak, what does that mean, that he's a literary firebrand in China or that he's kind of an obedient party loyal? That's such a good question, and people have very different views on the answer to that. Mo Yan is with the China Writers Association. He's actually the vice chairman. This is a, a government organization. He did not say anything when Liu Xiaobo won the Nobel Peace Prize, Liu Xiaobo being a dissident who's in prison for having called for democracy and free expression in China. Right. He won the prize um, in 2010. Correct. Yeah. But... Moyan's writing has been restricted within China at different times. He has written critically about society in different ways, but he he knows where the lines are and he very cannily stays just within them. When he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, the Chinese state-run media celebrated. In fact, CCTV, Chinese Central Television, broke into its regular broadcast to say, you know, the first Chinese national has won the Nobel Prize for Literature, which is technically true. But in fact, there was a Chinese writer, uh, Gao Xingjian, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature years ago. But at the time, he was living in exile in France. So the Chinese government isn't claiming him as their own. Right. And that's a markedly different reaction from Chinese media to his winning the prize for literature than, say, the reaction to Liu Xiaobo winning the Peace Prize in 2010. Which was to block all mention of the Peace Prize, to cut off imports of Norwegian salmon, and to let Norwegian diplomats in China twist slowly in the wind for months afterward. So what about Chinese people, the average people on the street? What's the reaction been from them to uh, Mo Yan winning the prize for literature? Well, I would say that it's still somewhat early. It's only been 
announced a few hours ago, judging from Weibo, the Chinese version of Twitter, there were comments that have great respect for him. He's a great writer. He deserves it. There were other comments from both writers and poets and literary critics and just people who follow uh, the writing of different Chinese novelists who said, you know, the Nobel Prize for literature shouldn't go to someone who compromises. And in fact, a couple of people pointed out that there was a rather controversial project a while back where a hundred different Chinese writers were asked to write in their own penmanship a speech that Mao Zedong had given about the role of Chinese writers in a communist country, in, in communist China, and that is to serve the party. Mm. Mo Yan participated in that and wrote out a paragraph of Mao's speech. Now, some people say, you know, he does what he needs to do to be able to continue to write what's important to him. And other people say he compromises too much. How well known is Mo Yan in China? Uh, Mo Yan is very well known. He is one of the better known novelists in China, both in Chinese and also in translation. He has a, a translator who has been working with him over the course of, of years and has translated five of his novels. In fact, that translator, Howard Goldblatt, has said affectionately about Mo Yan, he never met an, an adjective he didn't like. <laughs> and he said, you know, a lot of translators would take those out, but I make a point of leaving them in because they're so descriptive and they're so colorful, and they really add to the imagery that he tries to build in his novels. Mary Kay, thank you. Thank you, Marco. The world's Mary Kay Magstad speaking with us from Beijing. Now to a story closer to home, illegal immigration from Mexico. There are an estimated 6 million unauthorized Mexican migrants living in the U.S. right now. No doubt many of them have harrowing stories about how they cross the border. In a few minutes, we'll hear more about that. But first, we want to ask you about the geography of the crossing. So for our GeoQuiz today, try and name the desert millions of Mexicans have trekked through, despite the dangers in search of opportunities north of the border. It's one of the largest deserts in North America, 120,000 square miles. Suaro and organ pipe cacti dot the landscape, as do cities like Tucson and Hermosillo. This desert shares its name with a northwestern state in Mexico, The answer is coming up later in the program. Just in time for the 50th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis comes this announcement. Nearly 3,000 pages of material from the papers of Robert F. Kennedy are being released by the National Archives and the Kennedy Library. They're newly declassified and include notes jotted down by Robert Kennedy, then the attorney general, at national security meetings during the 13-day crisis. Peter Kornblue has been waiting a long time to see these papers. He directs the Cuba Documentation Project at the National Security Archives in Washington. And just as luck, he happened to be within driving distance of the Kennedy Library in Boston today. So he went right over to get a glimpse of the newly released papers. And Peter, you were the first person to see these documents. Anything especially interesting in them? All the papers are interesting. Robert Kennedy was the chief advisor, the chief confidant, and the chief secret intermediary for John F. Kennedy during the missile crisis and played a key role in the peaceful resolution of the crisis. So to see his handwritten notes, his doodles, his lists of advisors who were supporting an airstrike versus advisors who were supporting a blockade of Cuba, his notations on some of his private conversations with the president away from other advisors. Certainly a a striking historical record, and I'm so grateful that we now have it. 
Now, Peter, there's been pressure to release these documents for a very long time. What was the holdup? These documents have been in the possession of the Kennedy family. They are owned by the Kennedy family, and it just took a very long time to find the opportunity for them to, to be declassified. Some of the documents are the personal papers of Attorney General Robert Kennedy and, and also his Senate papers, and some of them are government papers. And um, seven boxes of, of those government papers that pertain, by the way, not only to the missile crisis, but to Robert Kennedy's role in other operations regarding Cuba, the, the Bay of Pigs. There's some extraordinary documents on that. There's his role in securing the release of the exile brigade that the CIA sent into Cuba at the Bay of Pigs, and all of whom were captured. And then there's quite a number of files of his role supervising, even as Attorney General, covert operations in Cuba. He moonlighted as a kind of director of covert operations against Cuba in uh, 1962 and 1963, and, and many of those documents have been released as well. Is there something you're looking for and think you'll find in these papers? I'm looking for more evidence of Robert Kennedy's role in securing a peaceful resolution of the Cuban crisis. He was the president's emissary to Anatoly Dobrynin, the Soviet ambassador to Washington. Robert Kennedy was the one who made the secret offer under instructions of his brother, the president, to the Soviets that the United States would secretly swap our missiles in Turkey for the missiles in Cuba. That was the secret deal that was unknown for years after the missile crisis ended that, that actually brought peace and avoided nuclear Armageddon. Now, the anniversary of the missile crisis will be on Monday, and uh, tomorrow on our program we're going to hear from our reporter just how close the world was to nuclear war uh, over the Cuban Missile Crisis. Was that precipice obvious in these papers that you saw today? Among the documents that I saw today was Robert Kennedy's handwritten kind of rendition of Black Saturday, the most stressful day of the, of the Cuban Missile Crisis, October 27th, the day when many of Kennedy's aides and many people around the world thought that the superpowers were going to go to nuclear war. He is describing the stress and tension in the room, the decision-making of his brother. That document and other documents give you a sense of how dramatically close the world came to a, a doomsday scenario. And having these documents available now will allow us to learn the real lessons of the Cuban Missile Crisis in hopes that we never pass that way again. Peter Kornbluh directs the Cuba and the Chile documentation projects at the National Security Archive in Washington. Peter, thank you very much. Thank you. The western part of the U.S.-Mexico border runs right through the Sonoran Desert. That's the desert we asked about in today's GeoQuiz. That arid landscape has borne witness to a huge wave of human migration in recent decades. Millions of illegal immigrants have trekked through it. Yet it's a movement of people that remains largely out of sight, despite the Border Patrol's efforts. From Arizona, Devin Brown reports on one effort to collect the artifacts of this hidden migration before they disappear. Our guide this morning through the Arizona desert is an archaeologist named Jason DeLeon. We're looking for the carcass of a pig that should be in a cage exactly where we're standing, underneath a little desert tree. But it's not. So I haven't been out here in, in a day and a half, but something has come and literally pulled her through the cage. <sighs> Puts a little bit of a wrinkle into my experiment. I don't even see the head. I mean, it's gone. I'm not even sure how that's possible. De Leon studies immigration, specifically the archaeological record that migrants and border patrol and even vigilantes leave in the desert. He collects everything from the basic. We easily have over a thousand backpacks. To the more unusual. 
I only have one curler set. And occasionally, even the comical. I did find once a wallet uh, with this person's um, identification from Mexico, along with um, this little kitschy illegal alien driver's license that they had uh, purchased probably in Roswell, New Mexico. They had a picture of an alien on it. But there's one thing that's actually really hard to find here, and that's the bodies that are left in the desert, which brings us back to the pigs. Pigs are the standard proxy used by forensic scientists to understand human decomposition. They've got a similar organ distribution, um, body weight, and skin type that, uh, that are a pretty good uh, analogy for what happens to the human body. So it's, they're the, the best example that we, can, that we can possibly use outside of a, of a real human body. We know, of course, that after people die, their bodies decompose, especially in all the elements of the desert. But De Leon's experiment is actually the first that he knows of in the Sonoran Desert to explain how quickly they disappear and how good animals are at destroying the evidence, which raises an important question. If bodies disappear this fast, how many are we missing? Most immigration figures are about the number of people caught. No one knows exactly how many get through, how many die along the way, or really even much about who these migrants are. Um, Here's some medicine. For the other major immigration waves in American history, we have monuments and museums. Ellis Island even has its own passenger records database. But to De Leon, this immigration, even if it's illegal, is no less important than previous ones. And his lab is one of the only places keeping a record of it. Um, what else do we have? Hannah DeRose Wilson worked in De Leon's lab this summer. So we'll count all the backpacks, we'll count all of the clothing, and we'll categorize it by if we can tell whether it's a man's shirt or woman's shirt, then we'll categorize it that way. What can we learn from this? Lots of things, but mainly that migration while down is still happening. In fact, Francisco Laredo, who runs the largest shelter in Nogales, says he's had even more migrants in his shelter this year than last. Un poquito más. Pienso que va a aumentar un poco más. This all makes De Leon's brand of archaeology fairly unlikely because he's studying a past that's not yet over. This is made especially clear when one of his researchers, Hayden Stewart, finds one day a body in the desert. Stewart knew from all the pig experiments that this body had been there only a couple of days. And it was really was most shocking about it is just how close I had to be until I sort of I recognized what it was. Because even far away, even when we were coming back to look for it, it was so easy to miss. They called Border Patrol and agents came to collect the body before the sun or the vultures could sit in. Only a couple of days later, the researchers came back to this place and already it looked like everywhere else in the desert mountains, dusty and open and steep, which is why De Leon and Stewart and the other researchers brought with them one of the most permanent materials they could think of, cement, to build a small altar. So that now anyone else walking through this part of the desert will know that something did happen here, and none of us should forget. For The World, I'm Devin Brown in Aravaca, Arizona. Tomorrow on The World, celebrity chef Magnus Nilsson is a champion of the local food movement, and local for him is rural Sweden. We needed a retired dairy cow. A retired dairy cow? Let me see if I have him in the back here. Let me, give me one second. <laughs> in the meantime, send us your questions for Chef Magnus Nilsson right now via theworld.org. This is PRI. The world is supported by WGBH, producer of Nova. 
Explore the gap between the glamorous television world of CSI and the reality of the forensic crime lab, with few established scientific standards, no central oversight, and poor regulation. NOVA's Forensics on Trial, Wednesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Saudi journalist Ahmed al-Omran writes a popular blog. It's called Saudi Jeans, as in blue jeans. Beside being a cool name, it was a good symbol for a lot of things in the country. Ideas and things that we say they're not part of us and, and our culture and who we are, but at the same time, things that are becoming part of our changing identity. So Jeans was kind of like a good symbol for that. Omran has also started another blog called Riyadh Bureau. This one is more news-driven, and the big story he's focused on now is a trial of two prominent Saudi human rights activists. They are Abdullah al-Hamid and Mohammed al-Qahtani. The charges against them? Founding an unlicensed political rights group and breaking their allegiance to the kingdom's rulers. Their trial was public, briefly, but so many observers showed up that the judge closed it, and he claims it's his right to keep the public out. So to get a better sense of who the two defendants are, I asked blogger Ahmed al-Omran what their status is in Saudi Arabia. Would you say al-Qahtani and al-Hamid are basically thorns in the kingdom's side? They've been certainly been very critical, and they have been a source of annoyance by the government, no doubt about it. But Their trial and the way the government is dealing with them right now indicates a change of approach because in the past, the government used to just take people and put them in jail when they're active like that. But now they're taking a a different approach, which is taking actors to the courts. And, you know, some activists would even say they're abusing the legal system. So both Professor Al-Qahtani and Al-Hamid have been requesting the court to open the trial to the public. Is that likely to happen now? It's very hard to tell because... They have made this request several times now, and every time the judges refuses, and they, they walked out maybe three times now. And based on the statement made by the Al-Hamid and Al-Ghahtani's organization, the judge might be willing to open the trial to some people, like some observers and some journalists, but apparently he's not open to the idea of a fully open public trial. It's kind of funny because so far uh, the requests to open the trial to the public have caused repeated delays in the trial. So I'm wondering if it'll prevent the trial from proceeding at all. Could Al-Qahtani and Al-Hamid be looking at this as some kind of defense strategy? I highly doubt it that they think of this as a defense strategy. They don't win anything by keep on delaying this. I think it would be better for them if they actually talk about the charges and deal with them instead of just arguing over should this be a public trial or not. But the point that Al-Hamid and Al-Ghahtani are making is the matter of principle. These two men will not accept a secret trial because they themselves have been campaigning for years that the government should open trials of other suspects and other prisoners who were put into secret trials in recent years. Why is this case important to you, and how dangerous is it for you, Ahmed, to even cover it? The fact that the local media doesn't cover the story tells you something about how sensitive this is to, to the government and to the local media. But, you know, I think the Internet now is giving a lot of people, a lot of journalists and, and other people the chance to talk about these issues and report on them. And it is important that the work of these activists get proper coverage and be reported accurately so people outside the country would get to know what exactly happened inside. Saudi journalist and blogger Ahmed Al-Omran, thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. I'll have a good one.
And finally today, we're going to chat with Iranian singer Suzanne Dehim. She left her country in 1976 and is now based in Los Angeles. Dehim provides some of the vocals heard on the soundtrack for the new movie Argo. The film is set in Tehran in 1979 when 52 Americans were being held hostage at the U.S. Embassy there. Here's a quick sample of the soundtrack music featuring Suzanne Dehim. So I'm hearing mystery there, I'm hearing tension, I'm hearing perhaps even panic. Um, Now Argo is this movie starring Ben Affleck, and it's the story of a risky CIA plan to free six American hostages who are holed up in Tehran. Uh, Same hostage crisis, they just happen to be in the Canadian ambassador's home, and the revolution in Iran is hitting its fever pitch. How was the film presented to you, Suzanne Dehim, in terms of what you were going to, to provide with your voice? Well, uh, Alexander Desplat, who's the composer of the film, asked me to to work with him, but he also said, you know, this is a very sort of uh, sensitive story and, uh, you know, it's about the hostages. And um, they sent me the script and I realized it's about this really amazing true story, which at times is is like so funny and so ridiculous. On the other hand, it's a thriller. Right. What did bringing your vocalization to the film's music do to your own perspective on the Iranian revolution And, and reading the script? It kind of hits a, a you know very emotional core to work on a project like this. That on one hand, on a, on a professional level, is a wonderful thing to work with Alexander, with Ben Affleck, with George Clooney being the producer. Meet all these people who have always tried to be on the right side of the politics, the politics that I believe in. And on the other hand, we're working on this project together, which you know reminds me of something that took me away from my own country for 30 years and has given so much negativity to to the image of Iran. Um, Having said that, I think it's extremely important that we can't deny the importance of diplomatic uh, relationship between our countries. We can't not have Ambassador, you know, Chris Stevens, and we can't lose someone like that because Mm. if we lose the importance of diplomatic relationship, then we're talking about the rednecks from one place and rednecks from another place getting involved with each other, and it's really bad. Shifting gears to other music you've come out with this year, you recorded uh, uh, Trouble Man by Marvin Gaye a couple of years back, but it's been released this year. Why this song? What what drew you to uh, Trouble Man? Well, I, you know, I love uh, black American music. It, it really, I just, and, and I listen to pop music because, uh, you know, it was kind of hip to listen to American uh, radio station in Tehran when I was gr- growing up in the 70s. So a few years ago in New York, I've always wanted to do something with um, the oldies. I released it on my label, um, but, you know, it was kind of like my label is a low-key label for my fans. Uh, a few months ago, a few of my friends had access to the song, and they are just going crazy for it. They said, it's going to have to run in American radio waves. So I said, okay, let's do it. There's this line, <laughs> no the first line from the song, I've come apart, but now I'm cool. I didn't make it playing by the rules. I mean, that's, yeah. uh, that kind of seems to describe your artistic path since you left Iran. Yeah, and since uh, and and outside of Iran, right?
L.A.-based Iranian singer Suzanne Dehim singing Marvin Gaye's Trouble Man. And you can watch the movie trailer for Argo at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.